it's pretty hard to make money off adaptation because most of the returns come from reducing the risks of future climate impacts rather than you know selling electricity like in the case of renewables and i think that's partly why adaptation financing is lagged behind mitigation to such an extent one of the things that i think is is misunderstood by the finance sector is that although communities and finance face slightly different risks those risks often actually interact surprisingly often and surprisingly aggressively because communities are also consumers, workers, political stakeholders and the like. You're listening to the SEI podcast series brought to you by the Sydney Environment Institute at the University of Sydney. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. My name is Justin C a postdoc in climate change adaptation here at the Sydney Environment Institute. I'm helping this wonderful team at SEI put together this very important series on climate change adaptation. Before we begin the discussion, I would like to acknowledge that additional custodians of the land where the University of Sydney is situated, which is Gadigal land, as well as the Darug people of the land that I'm speaking to you tonight. I also acknowledge that additional owners of country throughout Australia the lands on which each of you are living in and listening from tonight, and recognize their continuing connection to lands, waters, and communities. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This event is part of SEI's Climate Adaptation Series, which explores the strategic and deliberate measures needed to protect individuals and communities from the adverse impacts of climate change. As climate disasters increase in severity and frequency, Nations must adapt all sectors of society, from infrastructure and food supply chains to investment strategies in a just and sustainable manner. Joining us tonight to commence the second event of our adaptation series is a panel of economic experts, regulators, and financial consultants who will talk about the role that financial markets and private capital play in responding to climate change. They will try to address questions around what kinds of adaptation are happening in finance across Australia and within our region more broadly? And how effective are these in advancing global climate justice? So without further ado, I would like to welcome the chair of tonight's panel, Dr. Sophie Weber, to introduce our guest speakers. Thanks, Justin, and hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Sophie Weber. I am a senior lecturer and ARC DECRA Fellow in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. I'm a, an economic geographer um, interested in, in climate finance within and beyond uh, Australia. So thank you all for joining me. It's my pleasure to introduce our uh, experienced speakers for tonight's panel. Uh, first, Zoe Witten is Head of Impact at Pollination Group, a specialist climate change investment and advisory firm. In this role, Zoe assists companies and investors to navigate the impacts of climate change and build new businesses and products which are transition aligned. And Dr. Gareth Bryant, um, who's a senior lecturer and ARC DECRA research fellow in political economy at the University of Sydney. Gareth's research is focused on how public policy and public finance can create more sustainable, equal and democratic economies. So these three panelists are each going to talk us through the different positions and potentials of future climate finance and current climate finance and how climate change creates transformations in public finance, financial statecraft and financial markets. 
Finance and climate change, we think, reach into every aspect of our lives as two phenomena which are fundamentally structuring contemporary global capitalism. On the one hand, climate change is central to how money flows across governments, businesses and households. Financial instability um, and crisis is also linked with multiplying climate impacts and tipping points, suggesting that climate change is creating new kinds of physical and transition risks for finance. On the other hand, finance is core to calculating and resourcing decarbonisation and climate repair. A variety of different financial tools have emerged in response to this challenge, but I think there is a question about their scope and scale, their efficacy and the distributional impacts that they are having within countries and beyond um, nation state borders. So we think it's clear that more needs to be done on climate, climate finance to adapt to climate change and to resource climate transitions. But specifically, who is going to take this action, where, what it's going to look like, and can it lead us to fair and democratic climate futures, we think are kind of open questions. So in beginning this um, adventure towards understanding what climate, contemporary climate finance configurations look like, um, I'm first going to ask a question to all of our panelists um, to tell us a little bit about their role um, and their organization's role in responding to climate change as a financial risk. What is your mandate in ensuring a smooth climate transition? We should definitely go to Zoe next. <laughs> Thanks, Sophie. Um, I'll try and talk about this quickly. We, we will probably talk about this a bit as we go through the discussion, but uh, our core role in this is actually to try and help different entities in our um, economic and commercial system work together on climate risk. Uh, one of the things that I think is spoken to in your introduction and that many people uh, deal with in this space is that acting on climate change and trying to transition quickly to mitigate climate change risk actually requires quite a lot of coordination, more coordination than we necessarily have had to uh, have in our capabilities in the past. Um, specifically, pollination is basically a solutions house. We work with industry with financial systems or financial institutions and with government to try and build and navigate transition pathways um, and then also to build the solutions and invest in the solutions that those transition pathways ask of us. Um, we particularly work with financial institutions as part of that uh, universe of counterparties and we spend a lot of time trying to help them ideate, understand and then build solutions that help finance to your opening points this transition and for that reason try and reduce uh, climate risk and I'm our head of strategy and impact and have courage for trying to make sure that that all comes together in a set of outcomes that accelerate transition rather than uh, generating a lot of sound and fury but not much else. Okay so as an academic researcher and I do a lot of this research I'll be talking about tonight with Sophie um, it means I don't exactly have a mandate, um, but it does mean that I can, you know, try and take a slightly broader perspective on what I'm seeing with the, the topic, including, I think, about the, the premise of, of the question that we're starting off with about financial risk. So the question reflects, I think, a, a common sense that's emerged when talking about the relationship between climate and finance to understand climate change through that prism of financial risk. Uh, as was solidified by 
uh, the influential task force on climate-related financial disclosures, among other things. So that one led by former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney. Uh, financial risks of climate change include both physical risks of climate impacts, so things like sea level rises, bushfires and so on, uh, as well as transition risks of how we actually respond to climate change, so whether it's a price on carbon or as fossil fuel assets become stranded. Um, this framing of climate change as a financial risk has been a powerful move because it's enabled advocates for action on climate change to speak the language of finance and indeed appeal directly to the material interests of the finance sector. And so we're seeing APRA talk about financial risk, we're talking about RBA talking about financial risk, if not fully acting on, on, financial, on, on climate risk. However, I think at the same time, the, the pervasive f- framing of climate change as a financial risk is also somewhat limiting because it prefigures a certain kind of set of responses, especially by government which is mostly about de-risking private finance, which usually involves governments taking on the risks of private sector responses to climate change in one way or another in the hope that the private sector will lead the necessary investments. And this reflects, I think, a foundational basis of climate-related financial risks, which is not always well understood when talking about climate risk, which is that most of the time the concept of climate risk is talking about the risks of climate change to finance and to the finance sector rather than the other way around. Um, So risk is an absolutely essential concept in climate finance, especially when it comes to adaptation, which I know is the broader part of the the series that we're part of. Um, That's because unlike mitigation, so things like investments in renewable energy, it's pretty hard to make money off adaptation because most of the returns come from reducing the risks of future climate impacts rather than you know selling electricity like in the case of renewables Um, and I think that's partly why adaptation financing is lagged behind mitigation to such an extent because unless you're doing the most privatized forms of adaptation infrastructure benefits of large-scale investment in adaptation tend to reduce risks for the broader community rather than just private finance so I think what all this says says to me is that we need to recognise that climate risks are not equally shared um, and find ways of expanding the climate risks that the finance sector takes into account beyond just what they see as being financially material to their own bottom line. Thanks, Gareth. Zoe, you in your role work with a lot of, as you said, you're, you're a kind of coordinator and collaborator. You work with a lot of different public and private actors Uh, Based on your experiences, what role do different actors play um, for climate finance towards adaptation and mitigation goals? Um, Who has been falling short and who do you think needs to step up? I will talk a little bit and you can hear in what I'm talking that I'm talking about mitigation and adaptation. And one of the reasons you'll hear me doing both of those, obviously they're interrelated deeply, but also there's been far more work on mitigation and adaptation and far more work on transition risk than adaptation risk or climate risk. Um, And I had a funny conversation with someone the other day in which they said, uh, and I can't remember who it was, it was someone who'd been working on this for a long time. And they said, you know, it's just, it's just amazing. We talk to the financial sector about this all the time and they totally get transition risk. And it's like in all of the work on transition risk, they've just kind of missed the reason that it was all happening, which is the climate risk, which is 
you know, huge and very, very difficult to understand, probably bigger than we presently understand. But nonetheless, there is that sort of split of activity uh, among financial institutions, at least in our experience. So um, to your question, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that there's a whole bunch of actors here and we're probably aware of the big categories of them, governments, regulators, um, financial institutions, but financial institutions are more than just one thing. So they're asset owners, asset managers, banks, insurance providers and activists within the financial system. Um, And there's also companies who obviously provide quite a bit of finance and undertake a lot of investment as well and have different characteristics. But when we think about adaptation, we think about adaptation having two big tasks. And one of those, this is not perfect, but they are kind of distinct domains. One of those is increasing resilience in individual things. So assets, sites, properties, infrastructure, And the other is increasing the resilience of the system. And the reason I pass those two out is because the different actors in the system have different capabilities uh, and and abilities on both of those areas. Um, Finance and indeed companies or the private sector writ large is much better at the first. So increasing the resilience and understanding the vulnerability of individual things. It suits their control paradigm. It suits the risks that they face and specifically the ways that they experience those risks. Um, And it suits their resources. Um, It doesn't encompass all of their risks, but it's very acting on individual and individual itemized basis is very suitable to their governance context. Um, And probably for similar reasons, governments and regulators are a bit better at the second. So the system risk piece. Um, they've got better tools to do that. Their governance mandates cover those kind of considerations. Um, they've got people to do the thinking um, and people with the right philosophical headspaces about it as well. But one of the things we notice is that obviously both of those entities have faced quite significant challenges in adaptation particularly. Um, on the company and the financial side, we constantly hear about the need about the need for more, it's often framed as the need for more information or for more data, but it's actually the need for more insight. So the ability to translate an understanding about what is going to happen in the world if at different levels of occurring climate change and what that will mean for a company, an asset, an area, a municipality. Um, There's also just an absolutely massive capability build that needs to happen in the financial and private sector. And I don't mean that Uh, normatively or condescendingly, there's a bunch of people in there who've spent their entire lives focusing on markets or running companies or building a logistics system or supermarket distribution or whatever it happens to be. They haven't had time to think about climate risk uh, and the full uh, universe of what might occur under climate change conditions. And so that's a huge capability build just to get to the level of intuition that some of the people in this room might find natural. Um, And the other thing that the other big challenge they faced is that they can see individual asset risk, but not full system risk. And I'll get to that because that's also a challenge for regulators and governments. So on the regulators and government side, I mean, the big challenges I'd identify are um, knowing, anticipating and modelling how different vectors of climate risk come together to create full system risk. We, in many cases, have an intuitive understanding of how that might play out Sometimes our narrative abilities are better than our modelling abilities on that front and the gap between our ability to imagine those risks and then model those risks in explicit analytical exercises is often quite a challenge. Um, And when one is a regulator or a government getting a very articulated system of governance to actually operate in a certain direction is no small challenge. So that's been a big 
difficulty as well, particularly on adaptation. And you can see that in jurisdictions that are having to respond to adaptation pressures at the moment. Um, but I would probably, in addition to that, well, out of that, I would draw two big challenges that I think are sort of a big focus for us and also uh, continue to be, you know, when you think about those two groups of parties, a challenge going forward. One is, and this is kind of obvious, but is driving the big next step in mitigation and how the financial sector engages with mitigation, because of course that's one of our major risk reduction levers. Um, but the second is really that understanding piece. So understanding that systemic vulnerability well enough to be properly frightened by it, and also being able to translate that understanding into that insight for the different parties who um, have to be part of the action, the action pathway. Um, and just the last thing I would say is that to, I thought Gareth, your opening comment was interesting in as much as uh, finance bears risks and experience risks, experiences risks in certain ways. Uh, and those ways are sometimes different to the community. And there's a the way that risk has been framed historically actually shapes and, and limits the way that finance potentially thinks about adaptation and climate change. I mean, I thought that was interesting because one of the things that I think is, is misunderstood by the finance sector is that although communities and finance communities call it and finance sector face slightly different risks, um, those risks often actually interact surprisingly often and surprisingly aggressively um, because communities are also consumers, workers, political stakeholders and the like. And they are strangely difficult to disentangle from the financial sector um, in many cases. And so although that overlap's not perfect between the two of them, it's quite dominant. And for me, that sort of says that there is there is actually a need to continue to increase the literacy and the intuition about how interlinked those two worlds of risk actually are. I think finance sector still, even though it's doing a lot of work on this, sometimes thinks of itself as slightly more separate from that underlying community risk than it really is. That's, again, not to say that there's a perfect overlap, um, but I do think that's one of the, maybe I'll put it as my third big task, is to try and uh, increase that intuition and increase the understanding of how related those two sets of risk actually are. Thanks, Zoe. I'm going to jump over to Gareth now. Uh, well, I just think it's fascinating to hear the discussion playing out, especially the the micro-macro kind of um, lens that, that both Zoe and Graham are looking at from, from different perspectives. And yeah, like while it, it's, I think it's the increasing understanding of climate change as systemic risks that has got regulators and central banks to care more about climate change. Um, we're also seeing uh, institutional investors, asset uh, managers, those who consider themselves to be universal owners, also kind of taking on this kind of quasi systemic risk regulatory role too. Um, so um, there's lots going on there. And, and also the other comment I would just, my other reflection is that uh, the grappling with the risk lens and whether kind of existing ways of understanding risk are appropriate for understanding climate change or whether climate change, like the uncertainties of climate change or the, um, the distribution of risk between communities and finance sector, whether that kind of requires a rethinking of risk is also... Um, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I think that's just come up in the question now in terms of one of the questions in the chat about whether there's a role for governance, governments to play a greater role in insurance. I mean, sure, but that is a redistribution of, of responsibilities and risks, um, allowing 
profitable insurance to be privatized and non-profitable insurance to be socialized is, you know, a, a question that we might have um, as citizens. Anyway, Gareth, so how do you think then in kind of stepping back from, from what's what's been discussed here, what kind of changes do you think are necessary to public and private private financial sectors to change, to promote um, a f- forms of global climate justice? How might these kinds of climate finance changes and configurations contribute to progressive social, economic and environmental changes? That word climate finance, like, you know, we've kind of been switching across sort of the climate finance that is provided uh, between governments, usually from you know rich countries to poor countries, and also what's going on um, in financial markets, um, because those two things are really increasingly meshed. Um, I think there's a couple of ways to think about the question. Um, one is the kind of what what Sophie and I and some of our other research have called the gap talk approach, which is thinking in terms of financing gaps, so basically the difference between how much finance for climate is being mobilised on a global scale and how much finance is needed to actually adequately address climate change and meet climate needs. Um, so this is kind of the, the financing adaptation side of the question posed um, for tonight's panel. So there's lots of examples of this. So just looking at the latest UNEP uh, adaptation gap report, it found that in 2020, 29 billion US dollars in adaptation financing was being mobilised globally uh, compared to what they estimate as 340 billion US dollars needed by 2030, so a gap of around 10 times. Um, and so, of course, this gap needs to be closed, but that kind of magnitude of, of gap does suggest there is a need to think about the kind of adapting finance side of tonight's panel question because of the scale of change that's needed. Um, so over the next couple of days, this is going to be hotly debated. I'm sure people will see it in the news over the next few days at uh, a, Paris, a summit in Paris um, on the possibility of a new global financing pact. So that's been hosted by uh, Mia Motley, the Prime Minister of Barbados, and Emmanuel Macron from, the pres- uh, from France, of course, the President of France. Um, and I think what's most interesting about this summit in terms of tonight's panel is that it's not just treating climate finance as like a separate thing. It's, it's highlighting or trying to highlight how inequalities in the global financial architecture are creating problems for responding to climate change, especially in poor countries. Um, so the big proposals coming out of that meeting are around Barbados's Bridgetown agenda. Um, Barbados being a small island developing state being highly vulnerable to climate changes, um, is having a big voice in in this debate. Um, But when you look at some of those proposals, a lot of them are really about extending the kinds of de-risking policies that rich countries use and and allowing poor countries to have access to those sort of policies. Um, For example, by allowing the IMF to to guarantee currency risk, um, which has been identified as a big uh, barrier to investment in, say, renewables in developing countries. Um, And so that's not really so much about changing finance as about like equalising access to existing financial tools that are unequally distributed. Um, The mechanism for paying for this de-risking is interesting. So one of the proposals is a levy on fossil fuel exports and international shipping. Um, And I think that's interesting because it does seek to sort of fund climate finance by directly linking to responsibility for climate change. But 
moving more towards a, a, a real global justice or climate justice framework does, I think, require moving beyond that de-risking framework for public and private finance. Um, I think we can look at two other interesting battlegrounds here that are quite instructive for possibilities. So the first is the current debate about the shift towards green industrial policy in the US as a result of Biden's Inflation Reduction Act. So the ambition for the Inflation Reduction Act was massively, or what was originally the kind of post-COVID climate stimulus was massively watered down due to the big spike in inflation that we've experienced. Um, And it very much relies on market-based tools like tax credits, which have traditionally been about de-risking. But it does, I think, do two interesting things for our discussion. So first is it extends some of those tools, those subsidies, to public and community providers who can access subsidies that were previously only available to uh, private sector for things like renewables development. Um, And where it does provide subsidies for the private sector, it does it with strings attached. So that is in terms of safeguarding and um, and ensuring benefits for environmental, local uh, and, 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 and the workers involved in the transition. So although the IRA is only really a fraction of what's needed, it is opening up, I think, an important discussion about um, what an expanded role of public finance can look like in climate change. Uh, And the other one I just want to quickly mention is the debate over climate debt and ideas of climate debt and climate reparations for uh, loss and damage as well as historical responsibility, um, which moves very much to a climate justice-oriented framework in terms of finance. Uh, disappointingly, um, some might have seen at the pre-COP UN conference in Bonn this week, the Australian representative said, um, this is a quote I pulled up from the statement, we do not ex- accept the argument that there is an unambiguous debt owed by developing countries for actions taken prior to 2020. Um, And so this is a pretty common sort of statement that you'll see. There's a lot of resistance uh, to ideas of climate debt financing from uh, wealthy countries. But the fact they're even making statements like this, I think, shows that there is some momentum towards climate reparations. Um, So we've seen lots of movement in this space in recent times. In the last month, uh, paper published in Nature Sustainability that got quite a bit of media uh, by Andrew Fanning and Jason Hickel, calculated that wealthy countries owe about $6 trillion per year, um, calculating out to 2050 in climate reparations. Um, and there's plenty of advocacy going on from countries like Vanuatu, countries like Pakistan, uh, following recent floods and cyclones. Um, so we're a fair way off, has to be said, from, from realising climate reparations um, and... Uh, doing so would would likely require more than just a gradual adaptation of global finance. Um, But it's the the direction in which I think a lot of the global climate finance debate is heading. Thanks, Gareth. What, um, and I'm going to jump to Zoe here first, what has stopped the flow of finance uh, into adaptation? There is a good question. The billion, trillion dollar question, to Gareth's point. Um, I mean, one of the things that... I think there are a few big underlying issues. One of them to the earlier point is that we, I don't think, have the urgency and the imagination about exactly how threatening climate change is. Um, 
And that means that we do two things. One thing, obviously, is we underinvest in mitigation on that side and transition. But we also get surprised, I think, more than we should when we have adaptation challenges that come to us. So whether it's um, getting the news article a couple of days ago that the Rhine is already starting to get dry enough this year to threaten passage when last year, for the first time, everyone was kind of like, surprise, the Rhine's too dry to allow passage, industrial passage along, and we're still two months out. Um, That shouldn't be a surprise. And if that wasn't a surprise, then you probably take adaptation financing a little bit more seriously. So I think that's one underlying issue, and I I wish I had an answer to it. I I fully expect that probably get better at adaptation financing as we experience more adaptation challenges. Um, But at the moment, that's one of the reasons we're not super good at it. Um, I think one of the other reasons, and it's come through in Gareth's comments, is that it really isn't clear and I'm a bit of a stickler on this, but it really isn't clear in the debate who is responsible or should be responsible. Um, and I don't mean that in a trite way. I'm the In the past, the two ways of thinking, if we think about there being two big ways of thinking about who is responsible, often those two big ways of thinking have been conflated quite unclearly. And, you know, the two I'd identify is that on one hand there's the you know, causal responsibility argument with Gareth was just talking about. Um, And that says if you're a big company that made a lot of money selling or using fossil fuels or a big country that made a lot of money burning fossil fuels, then this is something that sort of lands squarely in your responsibility ballpark. And we see that conversation prosecuted through the governance space and the civil society space and has been for a number of decades now. And as Gareth said, it's getting sharper. Um, The other responsibility conversation is that if you're a a private entity and you face challenges and risks on the adaptation front, then it's your responsibility as a fiduciary to identify those and mitigate them and find some way of um, making investments that will make you more resilient. Those conversations get mixed up. And so you hear these interesting dialogues where someone says, these people over here have historic responsibility for causing climate change. Therefore, the private sector needs to do more to fund its adaptation which is this weird, you can sort of see the argument pathway there, but it's kind of like we've just bought a few big arguments here and we can see a pot of money and we'd like that to be, we can imagine a resolution. And that argument's actually not very compelling once it gets past the headline to anyone. You take that argument to the private sector and they go, that's a non-sequitur, I don't know where to start with that. Um, But it also doesn't rest heavily enough on the responsibility argument and clarify it and sharpen it. Um, and so one of the problems I see in the space, and um, certainly I found this vexatious for the last 10 years or so, is that those two conversations constantly get conflated. Now, I think there is a conversation to be had to Gareth's point about whether the limits of the requests on the private system are, well, whether the requests in the private system should be encompassed by the second ask, which is just risk management. There's a question of is there a responsibility piece there and another Example of that is the RWE case, which is presently kind of slowly matriculating its way through the European justice system. And if it is successful, who knows if it will be, will put the responsibility for loss and damage in one country on the shoulders of a utility in another country that has got a big historic footprint of of emissions. Um, But I think that if we, we, we can probably only get to a point where we have a clear 
I mean, I say this, I say this every five years and I'm wrong, so I'm probably wrong. But I, I feel like we'll only get to a point where we have a much clearer uh, pathway of responsibility for adaptation finance and engagement in it if we disentangle those arguments a little bit and say we can prosecute the responsibility argument, we can prosecute the risk argument, and we can talk about whether the private sector needs to have responsibility or not. But putting them all together just kind of ends you up in this echo chamber, basically, at least in my experience. Gathri, do you want to respond? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really useful way of, of, of disentangling it between the risk argument um, and the responsibility argument. Like there, there are like attempts, you know, to stretch the risk argument, um, both from regulators, like through, you know, the idea of double materiality of, of risk, which has been popular at the moment in, in the EU sustainable finance rules, uh, which is looking at explicitly making a, a two-fold element of risk, which is risk to community and risk to um, capital, uh, which um, can, you know, potentially uh, address those, those things. But having said that through the through the prism of risk. Yeah, in terms of um, the, the, respon- the responsibility kind of justice, uh, justice-based arguments, um, again, I think that the stretching of risk there can be a useful kind of political strategy uh, that's, that's been undertaken by movements. So like the, the RWE case, which is like, a, for those that aren't familiar, is like a big... German utility that has um, burnt a lot of brown coal for lots of years. Um, what that case is partly doing, I see, is is looking about whether there's like a kind of a legal um, basis for allocating historical responsibility and having a kind of compensation payment that could be um, could be associated with that. But at the same time, also just creating um, climate risk in general for other um, similar kinds of kinds of entities. Um, so I think that speaks to the kind of dynamism that is uh, inherent, political dynamism that's inherent in the concept of climate risk, where it's not a kind of objective, immovable thing. It actually can be made um, through, for example, climate litigation strategies and other sorts of strategies like um, activists uh, pursuing divestment as well. Um, and so, yeah, I, I do see that, um, you know, both from the regulatory side and from the activist climate litigation side, there's, there's possibilities to, um, bridge those, uh, you know, get towards a responsibility kind of, uh, framework via a risk framework. Um, but then when you, um, get to like concrete kind of, you know, adaptation requirements and beyond that loss and damage requirements, um, it does ultimately require going towards a, a, a responsibility-based frame that's based in, based in um, questions of justice. What came out of the recent Re- Reserve Bank review uh, about climate change where, um, where the Reserve Bank was, you know, in, in various submissions and um, you know, Sophie and I did one and um, there was others from various think tanks um, and general kind of responding to what's happening globally about whether it's up to central banks like the Reserve Bank of Australia to play more of a role in shaping um, the flow of, of green finance. 
Um, and what I think disappointingly the RBA review came out uh, with in terms of their recommendations and as far as we know that this is what the government is going to endorse um, is that, uh, that the RBA really should only have a very minimal role uh, in in addressing climate change um, by being involved in coordinating the kinds of climate risk assessments and so on that, that Graham's been, been talking about, um, but not go so far as to actually promote um, an active response to climate change in the allocation of credit in the Australian um, financial system. Um, so, you know, I think there's a couple of things to say about that very quickly. One, one is that uh, that that is going to put the RBA behind a lot of its global peers. Uh, we're seeing other central banks like the European Central Bank take climate change much more seriously than what is being proposed by those by that review. Um, in terms of, of of actually shifting its operations to basically change marginally the the cost of of credit uh, in favour of more green investments and penalising more dirty investments. Um, and secondly, I think it, it, it suggests that a, a tendency to fall back, going back to kind of the overall theme of the panel tonight, to fall back on on uh, thinking about institutions as they're currently constructed rather than thinking about how climate change necessitates um, a rethinking of, of the way that um, our uh, important um, you know, financial institutions, both public and private, operate. Um, so I think that although that recommendation has been made, I don't think it will age very well when we look back at this uh, in 10 or so years to 20 years' time. Um, and so uh, I think that's going to be a, a live space uh, thinking about green monetary policy. Uh, I see Zoe nodding vigorously as if you have things to say about this too. But I... I wanted to close with a quick comment from you, Zoe, from a question in the Q&A about the role of um, or, or how you might embed First Nations decision making and priorities or compensation in financing adaptation, if that's something that Pollination is working on. Yeah, I can definitely make a comment to that. Um, I think the question was um, originally framed as are those things embedded and the answer is uh, variably uh, but one of the parts of that that I would particularly, or the place where they, places they are embedded increasingly that I would highlight and we haven't had an opportunity to talk about is in the solution space. Um, someone made a quip the other day that when you are talking about climate as a problem, you're often talking about nature as a solution. Um, I would emphasise the often piece because it's not all the time, but you do end up finding yourself either at trying to regenerate natural pieces of infrastructure to increase resilience or trying to utilise nature-based solutions in all sorts of different formulations to answer climate problems. And the reason I mention that here is that the interface of First Nations knowledge, but also perspectives, needs, um, benefits, is probably, I would say, strongest in that nature space and in that growing nature solution space. There's been probably a coming together of worlds in that, not a perfect coming together of worlds, but nonetheless... Um, a, a need for adaptation and for solutions for adaptation um, and also a lot of people who had the the specialist expertise, the connections, the experience on land who had a slightly broader set of uh, perspectives than you might normally see in the commercial space um, and the combination of those two groups has really led to, I'd say, a much higher um, consciousness and attention to that particular 
set of concerns, issues, perspectives than in other parts of this conversation. But I'm sure that that, uh, that inclusion and that set of perspectives will grow over time um, because I think there's, it's the intention of many in the space to make sure that those views and experiences and needs are uh, included in the direction of travel as we try and build a commercial system that does a slightly better job of taking care of our physical environments than the one we already have. Thank you, Zoe, for that considered and speedy response. Um, I think it's a really nice note to end on. Um, Thank you, everyone, for joining uh, us. And thank you so much to our panellists for their insights. Thank you very much.